You know, I think one of the biblical doctrines that all of us struggle with, at least at some point in life, is the doctrine of the providence of God. It's this idea that God didn't just create the heavens and the earth and then everyone and everything in them and wound it all up like a clock and left it all behind to sort of play itself out, to create whatever picture it ended up creating on its own, like some sort of grand experiment, but rather that God started with the picture in mind. In other words, God said, here's what I want to accomplish. This is what I want everyone to see. Here's the picture. And now... I'm going to create the heavens and the earth. And he did. And then he stepped into the heavens and the earth, and the sovereign Lord of all things began then to sovereignly order and to sovereignly ordain and to sovereignly decree and to sovereignly direct and to sovereignly control and to sovereignly guide and govern over absolutely everyone in it, including every one of us and absolutely everything in it including everything that happens in our lives. And here's the deal. We don't have any problem with the doctrine of the providence of God as long as our life is going well according to our itty-bitty tiny little perspective. But it's when the wheels come off the bus that all of a sudden we have issues. When things are not inside, you know, of the edges of our lives starts kind of coming undone, we start thinking, whoa, wait a minute, maybe there's something wrong with this God, and He isn't really loving, or He isn't really good, or He doesn't really control all things. He couldn't possibly ordain this, and we start making judgment calls about God without first having the benefit of seeing the big picture and how each one of our itty-bitty and yet incredibly precious lives fits within the big picture and within the big picture makes sense. I think I've shared this with you guys in the past, but one of the things my kids used to like to do, I say used to because they haven't done a lot of it lately, for which I'm actually sort of thankful, is they used to like to put together these giant jigsaw puzzles, okay? And the reason I'm thankful is because then I get involved in the process and it's stressful for me. I've got to get it done. I've got to get it done. I've got to get it done. Just make the piece fit. I don't care if it's the right place. Just, you know, it, it takes up your table and I digress. But they used to love to do this. And you know the deal. I mean, you get your thousand-piece puzzle, and you open the box, and you pour it out on the floor, and then it takes over your floor for the next two weeks. Or you pour it out on the table, and then you're eating, your, you know, like this, because there's no room left, okay? But you pour out all the pieces. You flip them all up so you can see what's on the face of the pieces. And then what do you do? You take the box top. Why? Because it's the big picture. It shows you how all of these tiny little pieces fit together kind of gives you the end result. You know, the reality is you could pass out those pieces today and every one of us could take one of those pieces home and we could take it home and stare at it day and night for the rest of our lives, maybe for the rest of eternity, and we could come up with all kinds of ideas and speculations as to what in the world maybe it is that we're looking at and never know without the box top without seeing how it fits within the context of the whole. So anyway, they pour out the pieces, you know, and then with the help of the box top, you find all the flat edge pieces and you begin to frame it out because you can see sort of what color goes where. And then you put all these certain colors over here and all these other colors over here and all these other colors over here. And again, throughout this whole process, you're looking at this box top and you're helping by virtue of the big picture to discern how every one of these pieces fits together and how every one of these pieces makes sense, but ultimately only when you see it in relation to all of the other pieces as the whole picture comes together. That 
is a lot like the providence of this God who didn't just create everything, wind it up, and set it loose to make a picture on its own, but who started with the picture first, then created, and then stepped into His creation to sovereignly ordain and govern over every one and every thing, working it all together to complete, in the end, the picture that He started with in the beginning. And the reality is that every one of our little lives is one little piece of that great big puzzle. And, you know, part of the problem that we have with that, again, but only when life is going poorly, is that when life does start going poorly and things inside the edges of our little puzzle piece lives don't seem to be making sense to us and we can't figure it out and we start having these issues about God, part of the issue is that God then doesn't show up in our life, does He, and say, oh, I'm sorry, Uh, I realize that you're confused here and I know this is painful and I know this is hurtful and I know this is really disillusioning for you. I understand that you're struggling and so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to reveal to you, you know, part of my big picture. And I'm going to show you how it is that what's happening inside the little edges of your little puzzle piece life that you right now cannot and do not understand makes sense as it finds its place in my big, beautiful picture. He doesn't do that almost ever. But here's what he does instead. And he does this instead because this is part of his big, beautiful picture too. He comes to every one of us and he says, look, I'm not going to tell you everything that's happening outside of the edges of your life. I'm not going to jump in in the moments of your despair all the time and explain it all the way to you so you can kind of go, oh, okay, and then relax. What I'm going to do, and it's sufficient, is I'm going to tell you about me. And I'm going to reveal to you who I am. I'm going to talk to you about my character and about what kind of a God I am and about the fact that I am sovereignly in control of you. And I'm going to make you promises like, guess what? Everything that happens in your life, even those things that make no sense because you can't see outside the edges, make perfect sense to God. And somehow, when they find their place in the end in His puzzle, are good. God says, I'm going to tell you all of that and I'm going to call you to trust me on this one and live in light of who I am, of the promises that I've made, and in so doing to glorify me. That's what the picture's all about. And that's what he does. And I think perhaps nowhere in the Bible do we find a better illustration of this than the story of the life of Joseph, whose life, I mean, come on, if you're familiar with it, could not have made any sense to him over and over and over and over again. It's not like he has one problem and one trial. No, 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 no. We're going to work our way through this guy's life, and you are going to see him have trial after trial after trial after trial after trial. And if you step into his sandals for a moment, you're going to realize that there's no way inside of the little edges of his little puzzle piece life. which is as far as he and as far as we can see, that he could have made sense of this. And yet he trusts the Lord. And you see how it all plays out. How this God who sovereignly orders, orders everything, even the wickedness of man, he's not responsible for it, but he uses it. He uses even it in his picture and his puzzle. So today we're going to begin a new series of messages. We're calling it The Providence of God, Lessons from the Life of Joseph. And if you're familiar with the life of Joseph, you know that it starts in the household of his father, 
and that his father's household was phenomenally dysfunctional. Really, I mean, it's, it was a stunningly dysfunctional household, and, and that's sobering, frankly. This is the household of Jacob, who God comes and names Israel. It's his 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. He is the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, the very picture of faith in the Old Testament. His household is a mess. And yet the Lord uses that mess. Look for that. God majors in that. He takes all of our mistakes, all of our blunders, all of our screw-ups, all of our wounds, all of our issues, all of our hurts, all of our pains, all of the things that, you know, honestly, we probably wouldn't want anyone to know about. And even out of those things, for His people... He brings good, and somehow in the end, when our lives fit together, His picture will be all the more beautiful, not less because of them. But Joseph, through no fault of his own, is born into an unbelievably dysfunctional family. He is the eleventh of twelve sons born to this man whose name is Jacob, also called Israel. But he is the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, which ought to sound a few bells and whistles for you. The man had two wives. That's dysfunctional. But he didn't just have two wives. He had two wives and he had two concubines, which were like wives, but they didn't enjoy quite the same status. And then to make it a little bit crazier, the two wives that he had, his two legitimate wives, if you will, were both sisters. And then to make it worse, one was attractive and he actually loved one of them. The other, unattractive, completely did not love and didn't even know he was marrying when he married her. Feel it. When he marries Leah, the unattractive, unlovely daughter, okay, he thinks he's marrying Rachel, the attractive one that he actually loves, and that he's worked seven years to pay the dowry to get. But on the day of his wedding, in some kind of a Houdini thing that I do not understand and cannot explain, their father somehow pulled off a deception on Jacob so that when he woke up the next day after his wedding, thinking he was going to roll over and look into the face of the woman that he's loved and worked for seven years for, he rolls over and finds the face of her unlovely sister. And he's not a happy man. But what about her? You ever thought about it from her perspective? Good grief. This woman goes through the rest of her life knowing that the only reason this man is married to her is because her dad hoodwinked him into it knowing that he never loved her, he never desired to marry her. She wasn't so much as an afterthought for him. But he sure does love the other sister, the good-looking sister. Probably she got straight A's too, you know. And he works another seven years to get the one he really wants. Now, that does not make for a healthy household. But it's even worse than that because God, interestingly enough, shows favor to Leah, kind of the unloved, not quite as attractive wife. And He blesses her with the ability to have children 
whereas Rachel is barren in the providence of God. You feeling that? And so here's Leah, and she's having kids. I mean, she has six of the 12 sons of Jacob and his only daughter. Meanwhile, the two concubines, well, they have two sons each. So now we're up to 10, and the daughter makes 11, while Rachel is languishing for how long, I don't know, in barrenness. And Leah takes every opportunity to invite Rachel to her boys' baseball games to make the point. Every opportunity that she could until God finally, in His providence, hears the prayers of Rachel. And she becomes pregnant and gives birth to Joseph. And then Jacob does something that doesn't really help Joseph out with the other boys. Jacob decides to treat Joseph as though he is, in fact, the firstborn. It's kind of like he said, listen, uh, you are the firstborn son of the woman I actually love and of the woman I actually planned to marry. And so I'm going to treat you like you're my legitimate firstborn son and in some sense disenfranchised all the rest. But particularly, his actual firstborn son, a son of Leah, whose name is Reuben, little side note here, who slept with his father's concubine while his dad was out of town one time. It's making you feel better about your family, isn't it? This is the family of God right here. The hope of the world is going to come through these people. Hey, but seriously, the hope of the world is going to come through these people. The hope of the world can be proclaimed through you too. So anyway, Joseph is born and Jacob's all excited about it. And so he proclaims, this is my heir. This is the one who's going to get the birthright and the blessing. And he designates him by a special gift that visibly demonstrates that he is the one. And he's the governor over all of his older brothers. He gives him this multicolored tunic. And his brothers hate him. And you're like, well, yeah, no kidding. I mean, his dad set him up for failure. And his dad did set him up for failure. And the sovereign God of the universe stood by and watched and said, you know what? That's a part of my plan. I'm going to take that wickedness and I'm going to use it. That's part of my big picture. As it plays its way out in that little picture... That's Joseph, but he didn't know that. So anyway, to make matters a little bit worse, what happens is his brothers, who are really bad characters, by the way, really, really bad characters. One of the things you, you pick up on when you look at this in the original language is that Moses, who is telling the story, who writes the book of Genesis, okay, who writes also the account of Cain and Abel, this account where Cain so hates his brother Abel that he murders his brother, commits the first act of murder in human history, and then God comes to Cain and, and really gives him sort of a chance, in a sense, to repent. He says, where's your brother? You know, let's talk about this. And he says, well, I don't know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? Remember that story? I had somebody once say to me, you know, we were in a conversation and they said, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, am I my brother's keeper? I said, whoa, wait a minute. Be sure you know who you're quoting here. Because you don't want to quote this guy. And we had a good laugh about it. But I mean, really, God marks this man as a cursed man. And sends him out to live in the land of Nod, which means wandering. 
for the rest of his days. Moses tells this story about Joseph and his brothers in such a way as to cast his brothers in the role of Cain. That is strong language. But unlike Cain, they will repent in the end. There's a transformation that goes on. And all things are redeemed in this story. But anyway, these guys go off and, you know, I mean, consistent with their character early on, we did, they did something wicked. We don't know what it is, but we do know that Joseph found out and marched right over to Pop, who was none too happy about it. And the brothers then hated Joseph even more. Now he's a tattletale. He's not just the favorite tunic boy. Then when he's 17, and this is the clincher, God comes to Joseph and he gives him not one but two dreams. It's one message, but it's two different dreams that portray that one message. And so now if you're thinking along with me, now it's not just Jacob the dad who's favoring Joseph. Oh, no, no, no. This time, it's the sovereign God of the universe and they're way, way cool dreams, but only if you're Joseph. Because in the dreams, Joseph is standing. Now feel this if you're the brother, okay? And all of the brothers are bowing at his feet. All right? So they're loving him, aren't they? They are thinking he is awesome. And that's where we pick up the story this morning in verse 12 of Genesis chapter 37. It says, Then Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. So they're down in Hebron, as we're going to see, and they take all the flocks and the herds and whatnot, and they're looking for grazing land, and they go up into the land of Shechem, into another land, into a foreign land is the idea. And Israel, which again is another name for Jacob, said to Joseph, his uniquely favored son, whom he didn't send along for the trip, curiously enough, might he have suspected something? But it appears at this point that he has no choice. He says to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? You see how he identifies the place? Come, he says, and I will send them to you. And Joseph said to him, I will go. The son is willing. And Jacob said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers. That's what he's concerned about, and the welfare of the flock, and bring back word to me. Why is he so concerned about these guys off in the land of Shechem? Well, because two years before this event... Shechem himself, the prince of the land of Shechem, had kind of set his designs on Jacob's one daughter and raped her. And then offered to marry her. And two of the brothers, two of the other sons of Jacob, went forward and kind of negotiated a deal in which they trampled all over the sign of the covenant of God. They said to these guys, look, here's the deal. We'll join together with you, and you can have our sister if all of you guys get circumcised, okay? And then in the greatest act of salesmanship the world has ever known, somehow this guy Shechem got every guy in town to go along with that. It's crazy. So they all get circumcised, and while they're in their weakened condition, those same two brothers, those same two sons of Jacob, gathered up their swords and no doubt a whole bunch of people from their household, stewards and servants and whatnot. This is a major household. And they swept down and they killed Shechem and they killed his father and they killed a bunch of these guys. And two years later now, they're off pasturing in the land of these people. And so you can kind of understand why, you know, I mean, maybe if they got a little delayed, Jacob started wondering, hey, what's happened 
And he sends the son that he had withheld. It says, so Jacob sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem, which is about 50 miles. And once he gets there, it says, a man, meaning one of the men of Shechem, found him, and behold, Joseph was wandering in the field. And you're like, well, so what? You know, I mean, you read through these stories sometimes, and you see these little details. He was wandering around in the field. It's like, why is that in there? If ever there was a senseless, meaningless detail to somebody's life, you would assume this would at least be a candidate for it. But it isn't senseless, and it isn't meaningless, and that's true for him, and that's true for me, and that's true for you if our supposition is correct, which is what? That the sovereign God of the universe didn't wind things up and set it loose, but instead he stepped into the center of it, and he is sovereignly governing over and directing absolutely every bit of it, including wanderings. And maybe that's helpful to you this morning. You're going to see why he wanders. But he didn't see it. He didn't understand it at the time he was wandering. It says, a man from Shechem found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? And Joseph said, I'm looking for my brothers. You remember the whole circumcision thing? Those guys! Please tell me where they're pasturing the flock, because I'd like to get out of here. And then the man said, well, they've moved from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan, which is about 13 miles away. So Joseph went up to Dothan, and he found them there. And then it says that when they saw him from a distance, and how did they recognize him, do you think? It's the coat, man. It's the gift of dad. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. It didn't take them a lot of time to do consensus building in this group, I think. The irony is that he was safer with the man of Shechem than he is with his own brothers. But think about this for a minute. The father has sent the son, his uniquely favored son, by the way, whom he has gifted in a way that is unmistakable. And he has sent him to a foreign country to go looking for his brothers, only to be met with their hostility. And in a moment, stripped naked and thrown into a pit. And his brothers see him coming and they seize on the opportunity. And you're like, my goodness. And yeah, right? And surely God's up in heaven wringing his hands going, oh, good grief. I didn't see this when I wound up the clock. No. He's saying, this is wickedness. But I'm going to use this wickedness. I have sovereignly allowed it to occur for a reason. They see him coming. And before he came close to them, they plotted against him and put him, or to put him to death. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. So they identify him only by their resentment. They never refer to him as brother in this particular passage. Now then come and let us kill him. And throw him into one of the pits, one of these cisterns in the ground. This is a very dry land, and so they would dig these caverns in the ground. It was like in the shape of a bottle, and sometimes they were six feet deep, and sometimes they were 20 feet deep. But the idea is that when it rained and it was rare, the, the land would kind of pour down, the water would pour down into these cisterns that they kept in the ground. They're saying, you know, let's kill him and just throw him in the cistern is the idea. 
And then let's see what will become of his dreams. He will say a beast has devoured him and his dream will be over. But who did the dream come from? Because it wasn't the God who winds up the universe and leaves it alone to play itself out. Nothing can frustrate the purposes of the Lord, nothing. Not even wickedness, which again, He uses. And He uses to accomplish His purposes, and we'll see that all through the story. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we'll say, a wild beast devoured him, and then let us see what will become of his dream. But Reuben, the oldest son, the one who should have been wearing the coat... And the one who also had a broken relationship with his dad, because again, he slept with his father's concubine, and that just doesn't go over well, generally speaking. Sees this as an opportunity to begin to heal the rift with dad, to do something that dad would actually be excited about, that would make dad happy, that maybe could patch things up with dad. Do you see how God is taking even the wickedness of Reuben, and he's going to use it right now to gain a stay of execution for Joseph? He's turning it to good, all of it, because they're going to kill him and just throw him in the pit. That's it, summarily. Hi, how you doing? Cut your head off, throw you in the pit. That's it. Reuben steps in, and he says, no, 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 no. says, but Reuben heard this and rescued Joseph, at least temporarily, out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood and throw throw him into this pit. Yes, that's fine. That's in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. Reuben did this, Moses tells us, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father, and hopefully to patch things up with pops. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, that very colored tunic that was on him, and the uniquely favored son of the father sent by the father to go find his brothers in the foreign land, was met with their hostility, stripped of his clothing, thrown into a pit, It says, and they took and threw him into the pit, and it's an unused pit. It's empty. Moses says, now the pit was empty without any water in it. And Joseph, who had been given not one but two dreams, same message. And what was the message again? Because it's a prophetic vision from God. It's God saying, here's what's going to happen in the future. Okay? The message was Joseph standing and all of the brothers bowing. That guy who got that message from that God, at least at this point in the tale, is literally under the feet of his brothers. So what do you think he's thinking? What do you think that's happening with him in the pit? You think Joseph is all cool, calm, and collected? No. In fact, much later in the story, as Moses gives us the flashback to this moment... One of the brothers is going to talk about how in this moment, Joseph is in the pit begging them to spare his life. Begging. And you know what? God doesn't show up in the pit and say, hey, you know what, Joseph? Stop freaking out, man. I don't know what the problem is. Relax, dude. I gave you this vision. Here's what I'm doing. Let me just show you how your little puzzle piece that you can't see outside the edges of fits really perfectly, actually, because, well, I'm God and all, and into my picture, and this is how it all works, and this is why this is actually good, and I'm trying to get you to Egypt over here, and then when you get to Egypt, that's what's going to happen and all that stuff, so just relax. He doesn't do that. Not for him, not for you, not for me. 
But he has revealed to Joseph, and he has revealed to you, and he has revealed to me who he is, what he is like, the profundity of the love of the one who gave the life of his son to wash and to make us clean and to bring us into relationship with him. He withholds nothing from us in terms of his goodness. But he doesn't always give us a sneak peek. He says, look, here's who I am. I know it doesn't make sense, but you're going to have to trust me on this one. So they throw Joseph in the pit as he's begging for his life. Moses gives us this nice little detail. It says, then they, meaning Joseph's brothers, sat down to eat a meal. You know, hey man, you got any chips left over there? Pass the mustard? They all had a Reuben sandwich. That's where it started. He opened a deli. Think about how insensitive that is. He's spending a lot of ink telling us that these guys, they're bad guys, but they're going to be transformed. It says, then his brothers sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes, oh, wow, look at this, and looked, behold, <laughs> I love that word, it means look. A caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Now, why? Again, all the detail. Well, because, you know, all of those things were spices and not for spaghetti sauce. They were spices for burying and embalming people. Egypt is the place of the dead in the Old Testament, and Moses spares no ink in telling us about that either. He does it poetically, but he's saying, look, this is the place of the dead. It's where the mummies come from. They drove the spice trade in the days of Joseph. They're heading down to Egypt, and their timing is remarkable. You wonder why he got lost in Shechem. Sure didn't make any sense to him at the time. It was to delay his arrival. So that once he's in the pit begging for his life, his brothers are sitting around having a meal, kind of deciding his fate, and all of a sudden it's timed perfectly with these spice traders who show up. And Judah, whose name in the Greek language is Judas. That's significant since the New Testament, where we read of the story of Christ, is written in Greek. Judah, or Judas, said to his brothers, what prophet? Oh my goodness, what is Judas interested in? making money. What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. He's saying, listen, we can make a buck on this. These guys are going to take him down to Egypt. They're going to sell him as a slave. They don't treat their slaves all that well down there, so he's going to die in the end anyway. We might as well cash in and not have the blood on our hands and yet still get rid of him. And his brothers listened to him. And then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They sell him for silver. Thus, these spice traders brought Joseph into Egypt, the land of the dead, where they sold him as a slave, as we'll see next week, to a man named Potiphar, while his brothers head home. And on their way home, they take one of the goats from their flock and they kill it, and they take his multicolored special tunic, and they dip it in the blood. And they bring it to their dad, and they say, you know, 
Is this your sons? Do you hear that language? Is this your sons, not our brothers? They've disowned him. Is this your sons? And Jacob assumes that he's been devoured by wild beasts. And you know what? He was. He was. And the beasts were his own sons. And nothing inside the edges of Joseph's little puzzle piece life is making any sense at all at this point, is it? And nothing inside the edges of Jacob's little puzzle piece life is making any sense either. But as this story so beautifully unfolds, what you're going to find is that the God who promises to be working outside the edges of your little puzzle piece life actually is doing that kind of stuff. And you'll get to see how he does it with this man's life. He works it all out in such a way that in the end, this man, Joseph, will look back on all of this and proclaim it to have been good. Stunning. It's amazing. And that's not just true for Joseph. But God makes the same promise to us. So if you're in the pit, don't despair. I mean, even though it doesn't make any sense to you now, I get that. I understand that. You can't see past the edges of your life. But yet God has revealed Himself to you. God has so loved that He gave His Son to you. God has declared your little piece and His big picture so precious that the blood of the Son of God Himself has been shed for you. And God has come to you and He said, look, here's the deal. I'm not always going to come in and give you all the details so you can relax. I get a whole lot less glory when I do that. Here's what I'm going to call you to do. I'm working this together for your good. I know you can't see it. I know that it's difficult. I know that it's painful. But trust me. Trust me and trust that when your little puzzle piece life finds its place in his big picture, there's going to be a major aha moment when you, like Joseph, can look back and say, you know what? I never thought I'd say this. But that's good. It's true. All right, one other thought, and I'll let you go. One of the repeating refrains in the life of this guy, Joseph, is the Lord was with him. You'll see that next week, and then after, you know, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. It's so cool. The Lord is with me. You know what's so cool? Because the Lord's with me and you. It's the same promise. Same Lord. You're like, what Lord? The same Lord whose life is intertwined in many ways with Joseph. His life is intertwined with me, and and his life is intertwined with you. The Lord's life is all over the story of Joseph. And I think someday we'll see how it's all over my story and yours. Think about the story of Christ for a minute. Just follow it along. He is the uniquely favored Son of the Father whose, whose unique favor has been so bestowed upon Him that it's unmistakable. Sent to the foreign country of the planet Earth. A treacherous place, as it turns out, to seek and to save his lost brothers. See? He is his brother's keeper. He comes looking, only to be met with the envy and the hostility and the hatred and the jealousy because of his great gifts. And oh, by the way, he spoke pretty plainly about the lives of these guys too. 
He brought back a bad report, if you will. He unmasked them, and they hated him. He was betrayed by his brothers and sold for silver by a man whose name in the Hebrew was Judah. That's what you would have called him. It's just the New Testament's written in Greek, so we know him as Judas. Stripped of his clothing, literally, which was made of one weave. They played dice for his clothes because they, they wouldn't separate it. It was too nice. The Lord, who in Revelation 19, verse 13, is pictured wearing a coat dipped in blood. He was thrown into an empty pit, but who, like Joseph, didn't stay there. Because if you know the story of these two guys, and if you don't, stay with us these next few weeks because we'll cover it. Like Joseph, he arose from a pit, and both of these guys who come out of the pit offer bread to the nations. Joseph, a literal physical bread. Jesus, the bread of his body and the wine of his blood. See, Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers who sat down to eat a meal while he cried out for his life. Jesus arose from that pit, having been thrown in there by his brothers, to offer a spiritual meal to those who cry out to him for life. And on and on the parallels go. But the idea is that that's the Lord who was with Joseph in his dysfunctional home, wandering around in the land of Shechem, wondering what's going on, down in the pit naked, having been rejected by all of his brothers, fearing and crying out for his life, on his way down to Egypt in the caravan, sold into the house of Potiphar, and at every other moment in his story, and the same is true for you and I in our stories. The Lord does not abandon us. The Lord is with us. And our job is to come to Him in faith, to press into Him, and to determine to believe in Him and follow Him and obey Him and love Him and worship Him and trust Him, even when nothing inside the edges of the little puzzle piece of our lives makes any sense. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we do praise You for the life of this man whom You made great by Your Spirit and for Your glory. God, we thank You for the good that continues to come out of all of the wickedness that was brought upon this man even today as we look back on his life and learn and find encouragement and, and see how You work and discern who You are. Lord, I pray that You would encourage us by Your Spirit to press into You, to, uh, to follow You, to love You, to obey You, to worship You, to seek You while You may be found. I pray, Lord, that You would give us a vision of You that sustains us in life's pits, that gives us strength, and that You would ever encourage us with your promise that no matter what's happening inside the edges of the puzzle piece of our lives, what's happening outside of it both justifies and makes sense of it. And in the end, we will see its beauty as it finds its place in your great big picture. We praise you that we serve a God who is in control of everything, bringing meaning to everything even the difficult things in life, and we pray that you would work out your good and perfect purposes and will in our hearts and minds and lives. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.